to John chapter 19. We're going to be uh, continuing our, our time in the, in the Gospel of John. Uh, we're going to cover another big chunk this morning. And uh, I, I am excited and I have been blessed by, uh, by times of preparation. When we started John a year and a half ago, um, the pace we were going, I thought we are never going to get through this. Where did you find that cup? Oh, really? Thank you. The biggest he could find. You are wonderful, my son. I thank you. It's good. Um, I thought it was going to take forever to get through John. And uh, maybe you are thinking it is taking forever to get through John. Uh, let, me, let me just encourage you. The, the preaching plan for the balance of 2010 and all of 2011, when, when we're all done and we look back and you look at what we've covered, you're going to say, I cannot imagine that having taken that long to make it through one book that we've actually covered this much ground. Uh, all kinds of stuff. Joshua, Job, we're going to do Leviticus, Ephesians, maybe First Peter, um, all kinds of stuff in 2010 and 11. Um, so... Um, I am excited about what God is going to do through the word as we, as we draw John to a close and as we move uh, into, into whatever's coming next. Let's, um, let's read through our text for this morning. We're starting in John 19, verse 17, and going to verse 42. The scriptures say, And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also, his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. 
So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen, in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's begin and ask God to bless our time in the word. Father, you have spoken to us by the power of your spirit. You spoke to John, the beloved disciple, and he wrote these words so many years ago that we might know, as he says, his testimony and know that he saw these things and know that his testimony is trustworthy and true and that we can believe them. Father, we thank you for that precious gift. Father, I pray as we look at this text this morning, Lord, as we examine what you have spoken in your word, Father, I pray that you would demonstrate great Things to us, Lord. I pray that you would teach us, show us your heart, show us the horror of the cross, show us your holiness, your greatness, your glory. And Father, help us to see the beauty and the mercy and the majesty of your grace. We pray that you would speak to us now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, as we begin our, our time in this text this morning, by way of introduction, I would like to scan the text and cover the physical sufferings of Jesus. So that's going to be our introduction, is going to be a discussion of these six events that take place in this 
section of scripture that we just read. The first event that we see is the crucifixion. As, as we've come to this point, we see that Jesus has been sentenced. We've, we've studied that in recent weeks. We've seen his trial, how he was beaten and abused. And now it says that he is sentenced to crucifixion. In verse 17, the scripture says that Jesus went carrying his cross. Now, many people often conceive of it this way, that this is the cross that Jesus carried, uh, a a wooden cross, the the, the T section of the cross, and that this is the large piece of wood that Jesus carried. You see this in the Passion. If you've seen that movie, Jesus carries a full-size cross. The, The truth is, historically, Jesus did not carry the whole cross, but he carried what's called the patibulum, which is the crossbar, which actually kind of probably looked a whole lot like this. And so he's got this six-foot piece of wood, okay? It's probably, I, I don't know how much this weighs, maybe 130 pounds, right? I mean, and, and, and I'm, a, I'm a strappingly strong gentleman, and so, right? <laughs> but now imagine, Jesus has been up all night. He has been beaten. We remember the rule for floggings is that the flogging doesn't stop until the flesh hangs off in ribbons. And so Jesus, having been beaten and punched and insulted, beaten by soldiers, he's got a crown of thorns crushing into his head. He now has to carry this large piece of wood, large enough so that a man could stretch out his arms on it and be nailed to it. This is not an easy feat. I mean, I'm standing here, and, and I'm like, okay, when can I put this thing down already? Jesus had no choice. He had to carry his own cross. His blood loss at this point was probably great. Splinters driving into his back. It was probably neat, squared, notched, so that it could be nailed in place and hung up. And so this is, this is not a light burden. And he carried it all the way to the hill where he died. The scriptures say that it was near the city. That's the way the Romans liked it. They wanted it to be public. They wanted people to see what the cost, what the price of defying Rome was. And so they crucified him near the city. They carried the title on a a pole which would be hung above his cross. The, the crossbar was probably already there at the site, and Jesus would be laying down on that, and the, and the piece would be connected, and the title would be hung over his head. The title said, The King of the Jews, in Greek, in Aramaic, and Latin. So all who pass by would read it and say, This is what happen, happens to those who defy Rome. They took Jesus there, and the scripture says that they crucified him there. It's very simple. They crucified him there. They stripped him of his clothing. The soldiers, probably being aware that the people could attack, they worked very quickly. Jesus is is probably now experiencing great shame. He's been stripped naked. They put him down on the ground quickly, roughly, again reopening his wounds. They nail him, most likely either through the wrist bones or right down here. They fiercely nail him so that he will not be able to move. Up till this point, imagine the blood, the sweat, the grime and the the dirt, small comfort he would have gained from just being able to 
to wipe his face or to, to wipe his eyes, and now that's over. He cannot move his hands. He is held in place. As the day goes on and the sun gets hotter, he's unable to wipe away his sweat. The bugs, as they come, birds of prey flying around, they nail him in place. What they would do when they crucified somebody is they would bunch their feet up, they would, they would, they would put them together so that you'd be in a position like this, but the feet would be, would be pointing down and flat, and what would happen is your body would begin to cramp, and because your, your hands are immobilized, you've been beaten so much and, and so wounded, the weight of your chest is bearing down on the weight of your pelvis, and what happens is you actually begin to suffocate to death, and your heart has to work faster. And so he's probably beginning to cramp now. His breathing is becoming labored as they throw him around, again, opening those lacerations and wounds. Fatigue begins. The Jewish leaders are standing there objecting. And Jesus is raised on the cross. At this point, the soldiers split up his articles of clothing. You'll recognize this line from other Gospels. Psalm 22, verse 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It describes in that same Psalm a condition a thousand years before Jesus of what it must have been like in prophecy, what it, what it would be like for the Son of God to go to the cross, David writes and he says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And then there in verse 18 is the comment. they split up his clothes. And what John wants to point us to here again, as he's done over and over and over again, is don't think that Jesus is not still in control at this point. Don't think that, that he is not demonstrating his power. He is still sovereign. He has appointed a thousand years before this was said that his clothes would be split up. And so prophecy is still being fulfilled. Jesus is not out of control. He is not out of power. The scriptures then move on, and John describes what comes next. As, as time passes, as Jesus is suffering, he is, of course, getting weaker. His mouth is getting drier. His, his breathing is labored. And so we're not surprised to find him speaking in a way, using words with short syllables. He says, dear woman, or woman, behold, your son. In Greek, it would come out like this. He says, gune ide." That's the way it would, it would have come out. Woman, behold your son. And at first, we might be tempted to think he's, he's talking about himself. Look at, at me, here I am. And then he turns to the young man, John, the disciple who he loves, and he says, Ide, behold, a single word. Hemeter, su, behold your mother. There's something moving, I think, in that Jesus is suffering on the cross. He's, he's facing the most brutal kind of punishment and torture that any human being has ever undergone. Crucifixion is the worst. The worst. And yet, 
He is moved in the agony of the cross to think of the loneliness and the care of his mother in the days when he'll be gone. The son entrusting the care of his mother to another. I wonder if this is part of the reason why John described himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He gave me his greatest treasure. He trusted her to me, that I would be her protector and her provider. Verse 28 says, after this, it could have been a long period of time. His arms are burning. His flesh is cooking. The bugs are settling in. His legs and feet and arms and hands are cramped and in pain. His heart is pounding and his lips are dry and cracked. And he says this word. It's a single word in Greek. In English, we translate it as two. He says, dipsao. I thirst. I'm thirsty. Now, in reading these gospel accounts, you may remember that there's that there. It seems like Jesus refuses to drink, and then and then and then here it says that he is he's calling for a drink. You, you may be wondering what's up with that. The the there was a ministry among the women of the city of Jerusalem. They 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 were Proverbs 31 women in a way that you would not think. Proverbs 31 verse six says, "Give strong drink to those who are perishing." Now think about it. As Jesus was parading through the city, probably many women were coming up to him and offering him things to drink because this is what they would do out of love. This is the only thing that they could do. You feel this in a tragedy sometimes, don't you? You say, what can I do for someone? How can I help them? They're hurting, they're in pain. There's nothing that I could do. They would come to these men as they were being led off to, cru to be crucified and they would bring strong drink to their lips so that they could, they could drink and be anesthetized to what would come next. But as the soldiers offered Jesus a drink, and as the women most likely offered him drink as he passed through the city, he refused. He refused. He refused to let anything numb him and take away the pain of what was going to come. But he has been on the cross for hours. And he has suffered intensely. And his lips are dry. So he asks for a drink of sour wine. Psalm 69, verse 21 says, For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Jesus calls for a drink, though, not just for his physical comfort, but because he is going to cry loudly. He has something to say. And as he is there, they bring the sour wine up to his lips. He wets his lips with that, and then he cries out, Tetelestai! We translate it in English, it is finished. And his head fell. His agony ended as he died. Not willing to waste any time, the Jewish authorities, to keep the land 
from being defiled on that sacred day, the day of Passover, the highest holiness, holiest of Jewish holidays. They request that the legs of the men be broken. It's, it's, it's the day is wearing on. You know, it's going to take some time to get, to get these guys into tombs, and they don't want dead men defiling the land. And so they go to the authorities and request that their legs be broken. They, the, the, the man being crucified would fight back against crucifixion by lifting himself up to breathe. And so he would <gasps> draw in a breath, and then he would, he would, in pain, slump back down and begin to suffocate again, and then he would push himself up. But when your legs are broken, you can't do that anymore. And so death would come rapidly, but in intense agony. And so they go to the authorities, and they say, we need this done. And the soldiers then come with a very large mallet or a, uh, or, or a, or a, a giant piece of wood, and they break the legs of the first. And then they go to the second, and they, they break his legs. And they come to Jesus, and they find that he is dead already. This is not common. It's not normal. So the soldier, thinking perhaps something is up here, takes his javelin and comes to the side of Jesus and jabs that spear into him, and it goes deep into where his heart is. And the scriptures say that blood and water came out, which meant he was probably had been dead for a, a period of time as the blood began to separate. Even here, John points out the sovereignty of God. How close they come. The soldier goes up to, to go and to break Jesus' legs, and another soldier says, no, don't do that. I think he's dead. Psalm 34, 20 says, he keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Exodus 12, 46, speaking of the Passover lamb, says, you shall not break any of its bones. We see also God's sovereignty in that it says in Zechariah 12, 10, that they will look upon him whom they have pierced. How close they came to telling a different story. But yet God's sovereignty still prevails. At this point, we see the last event. Two Secret followers who were too scared to speak up before. Nicodemus, who came under cover of darkness, and Joseph of Arimathea, a rich Pharisee in the ruling council, probably in despair, no longer afraid, perhaps so disgusted by the turn of events over the past couple hours. They come forward, they go to Pilate, they claim his body. They bury him in a tomb. I think they were probably racked with guilt over not honoring him in the way that they should have in his life. Now he's gone. They take him, cover him in spices, wrap him up. It had probably become dark by then. The Sabbath had begun, and they were defiled. They would be unable to celebrate the Passover the next day, unable to eat the meal to celebrate God's provision for them. They went home and spent that Sabbath aware that they were unclean and defiled. Okay, that's the introduction. This is a tragic, horrific day. Humanity's worst day. If you watch this in a movie, and I, I know Christians are divided over whether or not movies like The Passion are, are good. There are some people who say it's, it's not good to, to, to 
to revel in or, in to, or to look at the gore, you know. And there are, there are some who say, no, we should look at the, the cost paid for our sins. But if you watch it, I, I cannot watch this movie without being strongly and powerfully and emotionally moved. But I would argue this is not John's perspective looking at the events that we should celebrate horror of the sufferings. I encounter this idea in a commentary by a gentleman named Leon Morris. He says this, as is the case of the scourging, John simply mentions the fact of the crucifixion and passes on. Popular piety, both Protestant and Catholic, has often emphasized the sufferings of Jesus. None of the Gospels do this. The evangelists record the fact and let it go at that. If that's not their concern in this text, what is? Another scholar by the name of Morgan says this, The physical suffering of Jesus was nothing compared to the deeper fact of that cross. What is it that we should see happening in the cross if not to examine and to discuss the physical sufferings of Jesus? By the way, let me just say this as an aside very quickly and then move on. I posted on the church blog, you can go there and read this, a detailed article, a very well-written article discussing the sufferings of Jesus from a medical perspective, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association a number of years ago. It's a very compelling read. You will weep as you read it knowing that, 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 that Jesus suffered this. I, I urge you to go read it, if you like. It's graphic. It's on the blog. But Leon Morris said that is not the point of the passage. And if we dwell there and celebrate those sufferings, we miss the point. Instead, what should we see? Think about this fact. There is no experience in the world that gives us any sense of outrage over moral wrong, except physical pain and suffering. Does that make sense? You see something like the Holocaust happen, or you see the number of people who die in Cambodia and the killing fields, and something in you says, that is wrong. But there's nothing that happens each and every day in my life when I wake up that, that, it, that makes me consciously aware of the horror of my sins. And if I knew that, and if you knew that, if we knew that, if the human race knew how disgusting and offensive our sins are in the eyes of God, I'm convinced we would wake up every single morning and pray like the people do in the book of Revelation that the mountains would fall on us and crush us. We see over and over again in the scriptures celebrations of the primary attribute of God, and that's his holiness. The angelic beings, beings crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. Who is like you, O God, majestic in holiness? After Moses sings those things in Exodus chapter 15, God takes them to the place where they build the tabernacle. And, and, and the children of Israel are shown exactly how they can interact with God from a great distance because they are unholy and he is very holy. 
Isaiah sees the Lord in all of his glory and he cries out, Woe is me, I am undone, I am unholy and unclean. Because that's who God is. And so what we see on the cross is the price paid to satisfy the wrath of God because of his holiness. The Son has been describing himself throughout the entire book of John as the one who was sent. My Father who sent me is greater. Jesus was sent, yes, to heal, yes, to teach, but ultimately to walk to this cross and to die on that cross. He is the bearer of sin. Praise God for that song we sang this morning. Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment, the cruel, brutal pain. That's not in Isaiah, that last phrase, that brought us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What is the most important thing that we could see in this passage? I believe it is John 1930. Jesus asking for his lips to be wet with wine so that he could say, to tell us die. It is finished. And when Jesus said, it is finished, your salvation, if you are a believer, if you trust in Christ for salvation, for your sins, you receive the blessings of the gospel by faith. You're not saved by faith as if faith is something which could accomplish anything. You are saved by the work which Jesus does on the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, your salvation from beginning to end, from the first to the last, was secured and finished. On the cross, Jesus purchases with his satisfying and atoning death by the good plan of our loving and gracious Heavenly Father who is outraged at the misery and the disgust of our sin. On that cross, Jesus with his death purchases your and my salvation. We are elected, called, regenerated, justified, purified, sanctified, conformed to his image, and will be raised from the dead to reign with him forever and ever because of his death on the cross. He says, it is finished. That's what John would have us notice. Think about what's not in the story, what's happening at the exact same time. The high priest, Caiaphas, this criminal who has put Jesus to death, he stood in the temple offering the same sacrifice that he'd offered years before, bringing the blood of a lamb. He's walking toward the Holy of Holies. He has the blood in his hand. He's dressed in all his high priestly vestments. Inside of him is sin and vileness, and on his head, on the top of the, the high priestly veil that he wore is a gold plate that says, holiness unto the Lord. Could you think of a more unholy character in this book? Perhaps Judas. But Caiaphas comes in close second. As he is 
going into the Holy of Holies with this blood, the blood of a, of a goat, of a lamb, of a bull. He's walking into the Holy of Holies. And Jesus is there on the cross crying out, it is finished. And before he is able to go into the Holy of Holies, that secret place that no one goes in, the veil rips from top to bottom. Does he drop the blood? <laughs> what does he do? I, I, I don't know. I wish I, could, I wish I could be there. What does it mean, though? Hebrews 10 tells us what it meant. Verse 11 of chapter 10 says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, animal for human, which can never take away sin. But, such a powerful word, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, by the offering of himself, by the offering of himself on that cross, taking the full wrath of a righteous and holy God, delighting in the Father's goodwill, yet tormented because he was separated from him. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It says in, in, verse, in verse 14 of Hebrews 10, for by a single offering he has perfected, hear this, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He cries out, it is finished! This is not a, a weak lament. It's not Jesus crossing the finish line saying, I'm done with the work you gave me. Ugh. It's a cry of victory. A cry of accomplishment. He has done something. He has attained something for us. John the Baptist said early, way early in the Gospel of John, verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says this, I decided to know nothing among you, among the Corinthians, as he preached, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5, Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preach to you, which you received. Now notice he says, in which you stand. This is your salvation before God comes from this place, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, this is the gospel. You stand in this truth, you're being saved by this truth. If you hold on to this truth, if you don't believe this truth and hold on to it, you believed it initially in vain. He says this in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What's the gospel message? What does he say? Be nice, be sweet, substitute your values for Jesus' values and love your enemies and that will save you. God will say, good job, do good. Stop drinking and cursing. You're a good person. People like you. Believe in yourself. No. He says, I delivered what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That 
is the gospel. The cry from the cross. It is finished. Should appear to us horrible from one angle and yet beautiful from another. Because our salvation is accomplished in that place, in that moment. I ran across a verse I don't think I've ever read before this week. I'm hoping you've not read it either. Or I'm going to feel smaller. I could probably use the humility. James Boyce, first president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, their first theologian, said this. In the midst of his discussion of the cross, he quotes Psalm 85, verse 10. Listen to this. He says, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. That's what happens on the cross. Holiness, the holiness of God, the justice of God demanding punishment for sins and the loving, saving, merciful, compassionate heart of God come together on the cross and salvation flows. All God's blessings flow to us through the cross. God God called you if you are to be saved, if you're being drawn by his spirit, if you love him, if you put your trust in his sacrifice for you, he has done that for you before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8 talks about those whose names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. God set his affections on you and called you before the salvation, before the, before the foundation of the world, and he secured your deliverance from sin and your salvation. And it was finished at the cross. On the cross, our guilt is taken away. Romans 8.1 says this, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has taken all of your guilt, anything, any wrong that you've ever done that would draw you away from God and cause you to be separate from him because of his holiness, he has taken it away on the cross. Do you believe that? The scriptures teach that we are righteous in the sight of God. Jesus paid it all. What is there that's in your life? And believe me, I get under this burden as well. So I'm preaching to myself here. There are these things where you're like, oh, maybe, maybe God's really mad at me now. Maybe God, maybe I've done something and I'll be separated from him. If you trust in the cross of Christ, then Jesus says to you, it is finished. Done. The beginning from the end, you are saved if you trust in his work. We have peace with God. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, if you trust in the gospel, God is not angry with you. He's not. He loves you. We're called to surrender, yes. We're called to repent of sins which we've planned or things which rise up in us, a lustful thought, an angry disposition, a hateful word. We're supposed to say, no, I repent of that. That's of the devil. It's of my flesh. It's the kind of thing that the world approves of, but it is not worthy of the calling with which I've been called. And so we're called to repent of our sins and to submit ourselves to God's leadership and his ownership of us. But if we surrender, 
We have peace purchased at the cross. The scripture also says that God gives us life. The Holy Spirit comes in and implants in us. He dwells in us. Titus 3, verses 5 through 6 says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, not because you're good, not because you go to church every Sunday or give more than uh, 2% of your income or because you attend Bible studies or go to small group or memorize lamentations. That, that doesn't save you. He saved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is why the veil was torn, because God doesn't have to live in a holy place anymore. He can come out and leave temples of stone and live in human hearts again. No more sacrifices it's finished. It's done. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you possess all the peace and all the righteousness needed to ultimately stand before God forever right now because of what he's done on the cross? The Bible says there's no condemnation. There's full cleansing from sin. If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews 10.10, By the will of the Son of God, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You are set apart forever, special to God. Saved forever. Do you believe that? Many people say things like, well, what if I commit another sin? Doesn't that mean I'm separate from him? Aren't I no longer saved? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, every sin made white as snow. It may mess with your fellowship with God, but it will never sever your relationship with God. We have purity in his presence. We have freedom from past sin. Our consciences are purified. And we can come before God boldly. How many of us, I, I, I see this in myself all the time, I'm struggling, I'm tempted, I feel set upon, things aren't going right, my day's not going well, I feel like a great big sinner, that's exactly who I am, and, I, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm like, I can't go to God and pray, because, because look, at what, look at what's going on in my heart, and what's bubbling up from within me, what's wrong with me, what's going on. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. But I'm so dirty so that we may find help and receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. God adopts us and calls us, gives us access to him. There's no need to be ashamed. He loves us, and he finished his work on the cross. I love Jeremiah 23, 6. What name can we call this Savior hanging on the cross? Jeremiah 23, 6 says, And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Oh. <sighs> Two closing applications. If you are here this morning, 
and you're like, well, I'm just kind of checking this Christianity thing out, you know, don't really know what I believe. If you've not planted your trust in him, understand the holiness of God. The scriptures say that the soul that sins must die. And then God shows such great grace in giving us the solution for our sins by crushing his most precious possession, his son, so that we might receive the son's righteousness. If you've not trusted in him for your salvation, would you do so? The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Repent of your sins, cry out to him, and he will save you and follow him all your days. There's no other place to find forgiveness and grace. All the good works in the world don't take away the wrong things we've done. We need a Savior. God's provided one, and his name is the Lord is our righteousness. Would you trust him? Call out to him in your heart, from your chair, before you move, before the musicians start playing, before I start praying, ask him to save you, and he will, because he's good. Now, if you've trusted him, if you are here this morning and you're a Christian, I know that we play games with ourselves, right? We wake up in the morning, we pray, we read our Bible, we go through our daily bread, we do, we do all that little stuff, and then we say, my day's going to be better because I've, I'm prayed up. I got my Jesus points, right, for the day. I'm going to make it through. I'm going to throw my check in the offering plate. Now I'm gold for the rest of the day. God's going to be happy with me. No flat tires, right? You know, life's going to be good. Not true. Life is good. And it has been good from the moment you put your whole heart, you put your full trust, you embraced with your whole mind the work of Jesus on the cross. You had all the righteousness and acceptance you needed right then. That's all you ever need. Are you living in that truth? Don't move on from the cross. Stay there. The wounds that killed the Son of God brought many sons to glory. Is this the source of your joy and your acceptance and your confidence and your peace with God? Do you trust in anything else? You don't need to. They make flimsy, horrible shields against the condemnation of the devil and the temptations of the flesh. Trust in the cross. Don't boast in anything else and don't let anything else become your treasure. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being willing to pour yourself out. Lord, we cannot imagine the horror you felt on the cross as you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you became sin for us. I could not even begin to describe, you don't describe it in scripture, what that meant to you because those are secret things that remain within your counsel between you and the Father and the Spirit. We don't know what happened, but we know that the cost was great and that you poured yourself out. You took the sin of the world upon yourself to save sinners. 
like me and like my brothers and sisters sitting here. Lord, thank you is not enough. Father, we pray, Lord Jesus, we pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that as you draw us, as you teach us these truths, as you drive them home and, and plant them in our hearts, and as, they, as the Spirit grows the gospel within us, as we believe in this, Father, we pray that we would, we would see that no pain is too great to suffer for you, no sacrifice is too great, no sin too important to us not to forsake. Lord, no trial too difficult to endure with joy. Lord, no insult too great that we cannot bear it graciously. Father, all of these things, we pray that, that we, would, we would see your, the suffering of your son and we would appreciate the grace that you've shown to us, Lord. And we pray that we would live in that and that we would treasure that you, the Lord, are our righteousness. That's all we have is what you have given to us, and it is more than enough. We thank you for the gracious gift of the gospel. We pray that we would live in it all of our days. Father, thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your mercy. We thank you and we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.